Welcome back to The Plowcast. This is the third episode in our new series covering our pain and passion issue. I'm Susanna Black-Roberts, Senior Editor at Plow. And I'm Peter Momsen, Editor-in-Chief at Plow. In this episode, we'll be speaking with Hannah Nation. Hannah Nation serves as Managing Director of the Center for House Church Theology and as Content Director for the China Partnership. And she's the co-editor of the book, Faith in the Wilderness, Words of Exhortation from the Chinese Church as well as the editor of a new book, Faithful Disobedience, Writings on Church and State from a Chinese House Church Movement. And that's a book of edited writings by the Chinese pastor and legal scholar, Wang Yi. The demands of the house churches are in essence the demands of the gospel. This demand is in direct conflict with the state. Article 35 of the constitution guarantees freedom of religious belief. In other words, social transformation, political progress, freedom, democracy, the rule of law, human rights. These are all good things in the eyes of Christians, but they are never the true pursuit of the church. Whether it is slavery or democracy, monarchy or rule of law, the Bible teaches that the church must obey the government's authority. In short, the Church of Christ is not at all interested in any political and legal system. However, under any political and legal system, the church claims the freedom to worship God and proclaim the gospel. The one law that the church cannot obey is the law that attempts to deprive and control our worship of God and proclamation of the gospel. So these are words by the Chinese house church pastor Wang Yi, uh, writing in a new book that just came out, edited by Hannah Nation, who was on our podcast. And these are the words of the man who is in fact now in a Chinese prison for his proclamation of the gospel. So uh, this is a great opportunity to talk about the church in China, uh, the persecution of Chinese Christians and of religion in China in general, and uh, many other things. The first thing that I'd love to hear about from you, Hannah, is who is Wang Yi? Uh, who, who is this man? Uh, it's amazing that he starts out by quoting the Chinese Constitution's guarantee of religious freedom. Um, and I believe he, he started out as a legal scholar. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Um, so he is definitely a, a pretty fascinating mind to follow. Um, he was trained as a legal scholar and um, worked as basically a human rights advocate in the um, classical liberal tradition within China um, for many years before he became a Christian. And um, essentially he had uh, a group of, of, of thinkers and scholars that um, he was friends with and um, several uh, people within that group became Christians and uh, were preaching the gospel to him. And uh, he, he actually started hosting a Bible study in his house with his wife before he himself uh, converted. Um, his wife converted first and then he converted as well. Um, but he was a professor at a university in Chengdu in Southwest China. And uh, really he was already a pretty notable figure um, in the landscape of young and rising Chinese thinkers uh, before he converted. Um, 
it'd kind of be like if someone who was a prominent writer for the New York Times or the Atlantic um, on topics of, you know, human rights uh, publicly converted and became a Christian in a very public way. And uh, not too long after his conversion, he began pastoring. This is often pretty common in the house churches. Um, essentially, the Bible study that they had been hosting in their house just grew and, and grew and turned into a church. And so he began pastoring and eventually um, left uh, the university he was a professor at to become a full-time pastor. Um, and But throughout all of this, he's very active uh, in writing. Um, very, very active writing online and um, really continue to be a notable figure uh, in China. And so this, uh, his church, the Early Rain Church, I, I think it worshipped on the 19th floor of an office building. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it had, you know, it was not just worship services. The, the church also was pretty active in civil society as well, it seems. Yeah, yeah. Early rain uh, definitely was not your typical house church, um, though I would say um, many things about it are more common to the house churches than, than we might realize. I think often in America, when we hear about house churches, uh, especially because they call them, they persist in calling themselves house churches. We kind of have this mental image of, you know, a, a small group of people secretly hiding, um, maybe in a field or in a, you know, individual's apartment. And um, it's a small group of people. But really, the landscape of the house churches has changed significantly in the last 20 years. And especially before 2018, when new religious regulations began to be enforced in China. Um, there were many very large house churches that were popping up, especially in the kind of major urban centers of China. And so early rain, um, before its closure, it had grown to be over 500 people um, in attendance on a Sunday morning. And they had planted many, many churches, and um, but they were also very involved in a lot of things beyond uh, Sunday morning worship. They had started a whole education program, um, Christian education program that ran from elementary school all the way through seminary, um, so postgraduate education. And then um, they were also always very involved in all sorts of different um, justice issues, social services, um, mercy ministries, um, basically very active in wanting to serve their city and um, encouraging other house churches to, to begin to be more engaged in the culture around them and the city's needs. I also find it remarkable uh, reading the introduction to uh, the book you edited, Hannah, uh, which we're dropping the links, uh, by the journalist Ian Johnson, who's, I guess, sort of Christian. He grew up Episcopalian, at least, he says, um, about just how public the church was and how public Wang Yi's preaching was. Um, it made no attempt to hide it, even though 
it's a technically illegal church. I, services were open, and, and Wang Yi was happy to have, you know, this American journalist come in, um, pretty conspicuous, and spend, it sounded like, hundreds of hours uh, with members of the congregation going, you know, and joining them for these different activities as well as Sunday services. Yeah. Yeah. No, the open nature of that church was very much integral to its identity and its mission. I mean, I think a lot of, not a lot of the house churches, not, not only Wang Yi's church, Early Rain, um, they really believe that the church is the best gift that this, that can be given to the city. And so they're kind of, uh, always playing this dance of they want to be free and open enough that people can find them. Um, I've heard many interviews with house church pastors in which they basically say, if we're hidden, those who need us can't find us. Um, and so we have to be open and um, to a certain extent and be willing to pay the price for that and to you know uh, count the cost for that. Again, I would say early rain was definitely on the far end of that. Um, they were more free and more open in their posture to the city than many house churches. But I think they really wanted to lead in exemplifying um, just a heart of freedom and um, the a lack of fear in engaging the city and, and its needs. and. And, and taking the risks of that openness onto themselves um, to really demonstrate um, what the church can and should be um, in, in a context like China's. So can you tell us a little bit about that context? What, I mean, assume, assume no knowledge, because I have personally extraordinary little, little knowledge about the history of um, Christianity in China in general and in the last 60 years in particular. So what's been going on? Well, um, I mean, I think so, as most people know, um, the house churches are illegal. Um, they are all technically um, illegal gatherings in China. This dates all the way back to the early 1950s and the rise of the Chinese Communist Party. Um, I think the one very common misunderstanding is um, it's very common for people to think that the CCP's mission is to eradicate religion um, and religious belief from Chinese society. And for sure, there have been times, for example, the height of the Cultural Revolution, where that was a stated goal. Um, but for most of the last, you know, 70, close to 30, or close to 80 years, um, really the goal of the party has more been focused on bringing religious life into submission to the CCP and its agenda. And so um, when the party came to power, they didn't abolish uh, all of you know, religious life in China or um, the churches, but they did require um, that that churches join uh, essentially a state church. Um, in China, the Protestant churches are called uh, the Three Self Patriotic Movement or the TSPM. And um, 
essentially it, it's really just basically a, a state church structure um, where uh, you know, the church uh, is under the oversight of the, the governing authorities. Um, and the house churches were birthed because essentially half of the Christian population in China in the middle of the 20th century entered that state church and half said, we refuse to enter that, that state church system. Um, we refuse to submit to a governing authority um, really any governing authority, but especially a governing authority that is uh, atheistic by creed. And so uh, that is what birthed the house churches. And really a, an important name for understanding this history is the name of uh, Wang Ming Dao. Wang, Wang Yi references him quite frequently in his writings. And Wang Ming Dao was a pastor in Beijing, and he really led the charge against joining the TSPM. And um, his writings were, were very influential in birthing the, the house church movement across China. Um, persecution of the house churches has really ebbed and flowed. Um, it was very intense um, from the 1950s through uh, really the end of the Cultural Revolution. Um, the first generation of house church pastors, the house church fathers, were all severely persecuted. Um, they spent decades in jails and uh, labor camps, if not um, died during those times. Um, but then there was this period in which um, there was a lot of leniency towards uh, the house churches and religious life in China. And um, really, as China began opening up economically again, opening up to the West again, um, there was this, this long, you know, multi-decades long period where the churches never stopped being illegal and persecution didn't stop entirely, but it was a, a much, much more lenient time uh, really leading up to 2018, and that's when uh, the, just this explosion of Christianity took place across China. Um, and you know, today it's estimated that there are over a hundred million Christians across China, which is just a sizable, very sizable church, um, even given how large China's uh, population is. That's a very um, robust number. Um, but in 2018, um, Xi introduced a new series of religious regulations. And um, they're, they're honestly, the regulations themselves are kind of boring. <laughs> they're really just focused on a lot of um, kind of administrative seeming type stuff regarding, you know, um, the legality of, of meetings uh, and you know where they can meet and, and all these types of things. But they've been used to great effect to um, really bring us into a new wave of increased persecution on the house churches. And um, it's, it's nothing like uh, what happened in the middle of the 20th century, but this is definitely a, a much more intense time for the house churches across China again today. And specifically, to carry on the story of Wang Yi, uh, he didn't start off as a Christian. He, he converted to the faith as an adult, right? Um, what put him in the crosshairs of this new crackdown on house churches? 
Yeah. Well, I mean, by and large, just the openness of the church. Um, He also has been very uh, outspoken in in directly calling out (laughs) Xi Jinping, um, which I think in many ways put a target on on his back. Um, But I think, you know, in many ways, uh, and Wang Yi talks about this a lot, um, the, the conflict between the house churches and the CCP is really a conflict of allegiance and ultimate allegiance. And, um, you know, in the Chinese context, he's really saying um, the problem with the CCP is that um, they want the ultimate allegiance and, and love of their people. And the reason that they are so keen to, to regulate um, religious life in China um, has to do with this, this sense that um, they don't want there to be competing allegiances <laughs> in their society. Um, they don't want there to be... Um, um, allegiances that are higher than than the CCP and, and really China itself. Wang Yi often talks about it as this very big picture conflict. Um, and and I, I think there's definitely um, a lot to consider in what he's saying. I think even outside of China, um, what he is saying about um, allegiance and about um, where the church's highest love lies um, it's, there's a lot that is very thought-provoking in what he says about that. But um, I think really, you know, the, the TSPM um, is, is the avenue by which um, the CCP um, works to, to regulate the life of the Protestant church in China. Um, it's, uh, there's a lot about the state church that is very regulated and very limited. Um, in terms of just their ecclesiology and and their theological education. Um, And so um, Wang Yi has has taken issue with that, and he's taken issue with it very, very publicly. And so especially in the new um, era of uh, Xi's authority, um, I think, you know, we really see Xi um, becoming increasingly and and more so um keen to uh i i don't know necessarily to to go back to um forms of uh control that were present under mao or the 20th or in the 20th century but for sure um much more interested in um regulation of um, identity and, and regulation of allegiance across china it's so hard to sort of imagine um, what it would actually look like to be worshiping under these circumstances. Do you have stories that you could tell or, or anecdotes? Yeah. Well, I mean, for most Christians across China, even today with the increasing persecution, um, Sunday morning worship probably looks a lot more similar to how we might experience Sunday morning worship than, than we think of. Um, actually, you can pretty easily go online 
um, even on YouTube and, and find um, videos of early rains worship services and of Wang Yi preaching. And, and to be clear, early rain doesn't exist anymore, right? Is that correct? correct? Yeah. So they do exist, um, just very much not in the form that they existed before in before 2018. Um, Their structure was pretty systematically dismantled at that point. Yeah, I can explain more of that as well. Um, but yeah, so, you know, uh, house church, and, and well, one thing that's important to note too is that, um, you know, China is a massive country. <laughs> and, um, you know, if you have 100 million Christians across China, then you're going to have a lot of different experiences and a lot of different realities. And so... Um, not all churches in China have faced, even house churches have faced persecution. Um, it is on the rise, but there are many house churches today that, that still have never faced anything like what early rain faced. Um, there are also many churches that do face very similar circumstances to what early rain and Wang Yi experienced. Um, I, you get reports regularly of house churches that are undergoing severe persecution. One of the funny realities of Christianity in China is that um, it's very based on the local context and the local social pressures. And so kind of a general rule of thumb is that um, places in China where there's more political unrest or, or social upheaval whether that's economic or other, those tend to be places where persecution breaks out against the church. Um, places like, for example, the coastal cities, um, which are just very economically prosperous and um, just in their governing structure more independent from the CCP, um, there tends to be more freedom and stability even today for those churches. So, so for example, um, you know, Wang Yi's church in 2018, December of 2018, um, what happened was that uh, they, there was a very intense and very public um, attack on the church. Um, I mean, they had just uh, hundreds of government officials and police who were orchestrated in this attack. Um, it clearly had been planned for a very long time. Um, but they began by arresting Wang Yi and his wife. And then they systematically went through and arrested all of the other um, pastors and the, the elders. Um, they were a, a Presbyterian church in polity. They arrested the um, entire session and um, all the leadership of the church. Um, all of whom spent a, a significant amount of time in jail. Um, most of them spent uh, close to a year in jail. Um, beyond that, though, they then uh, basically went through and over the following weeks and, and even months um, arrested probably, estimates are over half of the congregation, um, it was probably around 300 people um, who at some point were arrested and interrogated and, and spent um, some number of days in detention. 
Um, but they also basically destroyed the church's entire property. Um, they confiscated. They had a very large um, library, um, probably the largest theological library uh, held by a, a house church or, un, you know, unregistered churches. Um, uh library and so all of that was confiscated and taken away um they did a lot of very aggressive things like uh, removing foster children from families homes and within the church um forcibly relocating people to their their hometowns if they weren't um, natives of Chengdu and and really the list just goes on and on of uh the attacks that were carried out against the church and um, so, you know, on the one hand, there's that. And um, that was a very, very intense case. But again, I know many pastors and churches who have experienced very harsh forms of persecution over the following years uh, since 2018. On the other hand, though, I know of uh, people, um, I have a, a friend who was here in the U.S. for seminary and returned to a, a prominent city, I won't say which one, uh, to church plant. He returned after 2018, knowing what he was going back to. Um, he was supposed to launch his church uh, the week of the Wuhan lockdown, um, and no one knew what was going to happen. But um, a year later, uh, his church had gone from like five to a hundred people and on their first baptism Sunday, they had baptized, uh, it was like eight adults and, you know, five kids or something. Um, and, and now two years later from that, they are already going ahead and planting a second church. They've had no interference from any authorities and, um, they they really are operating quite openly and quite freely. And so this is China. This is just um, the kind of paradox of the house church reality that um, there can be very significant persecution on, on the one hand, and then um, you can go just, you know, across the country or, or up the coast, and um, the reality is, is quite different dependent on the local authorities. Just a little housekeeping. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasting needs met. We'll be back with the rest of our conversation with Hannah Nation after the break. I'm curious about what lockdown, what COVID looked like for the churches in China. Um, obviously, Americans also had a kind of, you know, difficulty with meeting meeting together but on uh, in such a different context um what what happened during lockdown yeah um so most of the churches i know of um they were really uh they were really uh intent on following uh, lockdown regulations um i would say Generally speaking, uh, house church Christians in China desire to be very, very good citizens. Um, they really love their country. And so even though um, they're very committed to, um, you know, essentially disobeying um, 
regulations in order to gather as the church, really apart from disobeying on, on that front, um, they're very quick to, um, to comply and, and to follow their authorities um, on really almost every other matter. <laughs> so, um, Well, there's this great quote from Wang Yi, which is just remarkable knowing you know, that this is a man who's incarcerated, right? Uh, for 60 years, house churches have continuously adopted peaceful, patient means to become law-abiding representatives, representatives of Chinese society, right? Yeah, and so, you know, Wang Yi, and, and this is, would I would say, generally be the posture of, of really all house church Christians I know, um, he says very clearly that the church must be willing to give up um, all of its rights, whatever they might be, um, except for, um, he says, the, the mysteries that have been given to them, which he basically says are its doctrines, its, um, um, its offices, and um, like the work that it has to do. And so um, we actually um, have, have come across a story pretty recently um, from a, a woman who was incarcerated for two weeks, um, kind of in connection to um, COVID regulations. And I think her, her, her experience is a really good example of what COVID lockdown was like for the church. Um, basically, her church complied and they, they didn't meet throughout the um, regulation or the lockdowns in person, but they were very, very committed to meeting online. And so as soon as the regulations were lifted, um, they uh, booked a, a hotel conference room in order to gather together and, and share the Lord's Supper with each other. Um, while they were meeting, though, um, they all got alerted on their phones because this is how it happens in China. They all got an alert on their phone that one more case of COVID had been discovered in the city that morning. And so they were all in, in a scramble to get back to their homes um, when the police came and uh, interfered because uh, they were meeting together publicly as a group of people in the midst of this, you know, hour old <laughs> COVID um, lockdown. Um, and so uh, she was arrested um, because they had met together um, despite the ban being lifted for about 24 hours. And so I think that's just a good example of how the churches, you know, COVID, the COVID lockdowns in China have been very intense. And um, they have definitely been very, very hard for their churches. And there has been a lot of persecution that has happened against the churches in conjunction with the, the reality of the COVID lockdowns. Um, but it's a very complicated picture. And the churches have really sought to be exemplary uh, citizens abiding by their regulations uh, throughout it all. And I think one of the things that really jumps out to me is, is just how much um, they have been thinking through these questions of what is the church and how do we never waver on our commitment to gather together as the church, 
um, but also adapt to the realities around us. And so I would say they are like miles ahead of us on thinking through um, questions of digital church and like when is a digital meeting acceptable and when is it not? And what are the guidelines and the parameters that should guide us as, as the church and thinking through those questions. And um, also just they, they love to gather together <laughs> and they, they see and understand how much um, gathering is essential to the life of the church. And so um, even though they abide by the lockdown regulations, you can see like they're so quick to gather back together again. Um, and I think there's just a, watching them go through this has really challenged a lot of my thoughts on and all of this because I think in America we both um, we're very limited in our understanding of uh, what it means to gather, but also the importance of gathering. And so kind of on both sides of how uh, these issues have, have fallen out in the U.S., they kind of challenge us on both sides of those, I think, because they, they remind us that um, if, if not gathering in our church building, um, like if, if that is all that our understanding of the church is, um, that if our understanding of church is limited to gathering in a church building, then we have a really problematic view of what it means to be the church. But also, if we're not quick and eager to gather again when we're able, then we also, in that sense, have a very problematic view of the church. That's fascinating. I'm really interested to sort of think about Wangi as a, a, I guess, as a thinker and as someone who presumably, when he was just a, when he would, before he converted, when he was a sort of public intellectual and professor, um, he couldn't have been really on the right side of the Chinese government even then, um, because he was, for sure, yeah, he, you know, he was a classical liberal and he was, <clears throat> he was talking about human rights abuses and and about law, um, and but it was becoming a Christian that kind of like intensified. It was a sort of a yes. It, it was the same thing, but more, but also something different. Um, and you you wrote that his training as a legal scholar influenced by both Western and Chinese political philosophy goes hand in hand with his development as a theologian and biblical scholar who shifted his focus increasingly from the topic of rights to the kingdom of God. Um, can you talk more about like how he thinks about rights and how he thinks about um, sort of freedom and how that's shifted? Right. And, and I would also say, I mean, because of his background in classical liberalism, you know, this topic of religious liberty, which in this country, you know, is such a live issue, you know, especially over the last few years, what that means. <laughs> um, be fascinating. Well, so, <laughs> I mean, one of the interesting things when you read Wang Yi is just um, taking note of who he's citing and, and re referencing. <laughs> so, um, you know, you definitely immediately notice, um, you know, Rutherford and Locke and um, these kind of traditional names. Um, after he became a Christian, he was very influenced by a lot of um, Calvinistic thought. And so he definitely um, read um, 
Calvin and Luther and, and the um, reformers. Um, I also have a friend who is currently finishing up a dissertation on Wang Yi and neo-Calvinism and going through all of his writings uh, because what we have in the book is really just a small portion <laughs> of uh, his, his body of work. But um, going through and really chasing the influences of um, the neo-Calvinists and um, uh, just figures like um, Kuiper and Van Til. Um, but also there's just been a lot of uh, much more uh, modern influence on his thought. Um, he engaged a lot with um, the work of Keller and uh, some of the more recent um, theological work coming out of the United States. So he has read just a ton. <laughs> um, and that's just on the Western side. Um, when you go through and you are looking at Chinese influences, um, there are many as well. Um, one of the things that I always like to highlight with the Chinese influences is, is not just um, the, the liberal intellectuals that he followed and read, um, but also he was really active in trying to read about the history of the house church, which um, the house church fathers were um, definitely not as much uh, intellectually wired or... Um, focused as the newer generation is and so but he he's very interested to kind of try to trace down these primary sources from the house church fathers and is just very seeped in the history and the legacy of their writings and their thinking and their very much more kind of um, fundamentalist theology um, in terms of Wang Yi's thoughts on freedom and um, just his thoughts on religious freedom. I think it's very complex. I think um, I, I long for the day that he comes out of prison and hopefully we are given the opportunity to, to ask him some of these questions because I, I see in him a lot of development and a lot of um, not shifting but just movement in his thought um, where works from uh, kind of the early 2010s, um, you see him just talking a lot with the language of rights. Um, but the further you, or the closer you get to 2018 and to his arrest, um, he really takes on more and more this language of the kingdom of God. And especially um, the kingdom of God eschatologically. And I think um, one of the m most important works in my mind is that um, he is, it's a very short work, but it's called um, The Cross and the Landfill. And in this work, he really lays out his view of um, the church's role in the world and uh, how he talks about the church as a ballet dancer that's dancing on a landfill and how um, the beauty of the dance is magnified by the the landfill that surrounds it 
and how um, we are, as the church, uh, in a sense, free to do this dance um, and, and called to do this dance um, in order to, to point people to um, our eschatological destiny and, our, and the church's end. And, um, but, but I think that he also talks about how for the churches in China, as they face the CCP, the fight is over the meaning of the landfill and who gets to define what the landfill is. And so um, this is where I see this shift happening that, that for him, um, the church is free when it understands the true meaning of the world around it. Um, what guarantees the freedom of the church is not um, the rights that it can attain for itself um, in a political arena, but what makes the church free is um, understanding the big picture and understanding the big picture of the gospel, understanding the true meaning of the world, understanding the true meaning of the landfill, as he says, and that um, the point of disagreement between um, the church and and the th governing authorities and the powers above it um, is, is who gets to define these meanings. Um, who gets to define our reality around us and who has the right to do that. And so um, he begins to speak a lot less about rights, I think, because he's, he's just talking more and more about um, these, these ultimate questions of meaning and purpose and, and our destiny. There's a few lines I just jotted down along those lines because I was thinking uh, of what churches in the secularizing West might, you know, apply f from some of these insights from, from churches that have struggled to survive. Uh, the church does not need external, quote, religious freedom, unquote. We do not need a religious civil rights movement. Uh, we need a genuine gospel movement. What, and, and I guess that's, that's sort of saying what, what, what you were saying, that the church is free by its nature, right? I mean, that's what the early Christians said under the Holy Roman Empire. If you read, you know, the, the martyr of uh, Justin Martyr's apology to Christians, he emphasizes we're good subjects. We pray for you. We pay our taxes. We're the best of the best of subjects. Um, but uh, we we look to this kingdom that's coming that's that's going to relativize, you know, all the claims of the Roman Empire. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And that's where, uh, you know, he has this quote where he says, um, you know, essentially that the church is free already. It, it doesn't have to have political protections and rights to be free. It, the church is already free and nothing changes that. And, and so the church is empowered to live boldly when it recognizes that. Um, what makes a church uh, able to be bold in its society is when it, it, when it recognizes the freedom it already has because then it makes decisions accordingly. Um, and I think that's, that's kind of getting back to some of the things we were talking about earlier. That's so much of why um, early reign was so public um, and, and kind of unusually extremely public in Chinese society uh, because uh, they really believed 
that, you know, they were already um, free and living out the freedom of the gospel um, in a society that, um, that, that may not recognize that freedom, <laughs> but um, they, they have a, a higher understanding and, and a higher authority above um, the CCP and its desire to, to define the terms. Well, wow, that's a, a a great point to close on. But there is one more question I I have to ask: Is how did you get into this? You you are actually um, <laughs> the managing director of the Center for House Church Theology. Obviously, um, you're motivated by the, the sense that there's something that we Christians in in the West um, have to learn from our brothers and sisters. Yeah. yeah, I honestly, um, I wouldn't say I got into this accidentally. Um, I can definitely see the Lord's leading over the course of my life, but it was not something that I, you know, I didn't go to college thinking that this was <laughs> where I was going to end up in life. Um, but I, yeah, I, I had a pretty um, international childhood and um, I've, I've lived in a million different places. Um, when I was in college, I essentially went to China on a whim. <laughs> um, I uh, was really curious to see the Great Wall, uh, but I also had my dad as a professor, and, and he had a Chinese grad student who became a Christian, and then I had some um, friends from college who went and taught English in China. So there was just this one year where it was kind of crossing my path a lot. And I thought, oh, maybe I'll go do that too. So we went and taught English for a summer in 2005. And um, it just was amazing. I mean, if you've never been to Asia, if you've never been to China specifically, um, as a Westerner, it's really hard to go and not just be totally blown away <laughs> by the reality of 1.3 billion people um, who, and just, I mean, I think I was a history major, um, so I've always kind of had this interest in the, the big questions and the, and the big picture, um, always had an interest in world history, and yeah, that summer was just really, really pivotal in my life, and um, came back and um, just really have for the last 20 years had a sense that um, the next chapter of church history is 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 already unfolding across China and that's where it will continue to unfold among other global contexts and um, I've been involved in a lot of different things I was involved with student ministry uh, to Chinese students for really m all of my my 20s and then um, went to seminary and realized that I really love writing and um, intellectual engagement and out of that time um, was recruited into the work that I, I do now which is basically working to help bring out the writings and the thought of the Chinese house churches um, to help bring those out from China share them with a the global church because yeah I really believe that there's a lot that we can learn from them China is um you know I think in the U.S. 
um, you know, as we've said already in this conversation, there's so much fear um, regarding the increasing, you know, secularization of our culture and just um, the marginalization of the church. Uh, you know, I, I don't personally believe that we are facing persecution. I do think, though, that we are very much um, having to come to terms with our, our social marginalization and and the fact that we're not at the center of a lot of things anymore but um for a lot of people that that causes fear um and and dismay and um when you look outside of the western world when you look at places like china you can find churches that are thriving and and growing and excelling at being the church under um far, far greater pressures <laughs> than we face here. And so we can be encouraged. We can, we can be deeply encouraged in knowing that um, you don't have to have cultural power or um, protections and rights for God's work to be done in and through the church. Um, and so, yeah, my heart is really to, to help uh, foster and, and, and further those voices that can help um, give us a better picture of what it means for the church to persevere under pressure um, and and that it's something we can endure and, and um, be encouraged by as well. It's been great talking, Hannah. Thank you so much for having me. And we'd love to hear about your work as it continues. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast needs met and share with your friends. For a lot more content like this, check out plow.com for the digital magazine. You can also subscribe. $36 a year will get you the print magazine or for $99 a year, you can become a member of Plow. That membership carries a whole range of benefits from free books to regular calls with the editors to invitations to special events and the occasional gift. Our members are one aspect of the broader Plow community, and we depend on them as a kind of extra advisory council. Go to plow.com membership to learn more.